Now tell me if you remember No telling if you remember I'll never forget I'll never forget Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Hashtag Cause of Scene podcast. Today, my guest is Jesse Daniels. Hello, Jesse. Could you introduce yourself to the audience? Hi. Yeah, my name is Jesse Daniels. I'm a writer, professor, uh, troublemaker. <laughs> oh, I like that already. <laughs> okay, so we're going to have a good conversation. I love how you just do that troublemaker. My little, the follicles on my arm, the hairs just went up. Okay, so let's start as we always do. Why is it important to cause a scene and how are you causing a scene? Yeah, I think it's important to cause a scene because otherwise uh, the status quo never gets disrupted. Um, so I think it's super important to cause a scene and how am I causing a scene? I am doing, uh, I'm causing multiple scenes, I would say, um, you know, I've been, um, I identify as queer, as femme, as lesbian, and I, um, have been interested in and troubled by white supremacy for most of my adult life. I got, um, first got interested sort of intellectually in white supremacy as a graduate student at the University of Texas at Austin. I had done a master's thesis on lynching um, and and decided to follow that with a PhD dissertation on contemporary forms of that same ideology. And so I was looking at the Klan Watch archive at Southern Poverty Law Center for my dissertation. I was in the middle of that dissertation process when quite by accident, I was at my uh, great aunt's house and pulled a book off the shelf. It was Thomas Dixon's The Klansman. And I sort of offhandedly asked her why she had a copy of that. And she said, well, I think there's your grandfather's. I opened it up and saw his name, you know, written in the inscription in the book. And, and I said, well, why did he have this book? She said, oh, he was part of that group, honey. Just like so offhandedly. My father was there at the time. I was like, and he knew the dissertation research I was doing. I was like, you knew this? Did you know this? He was like, yeah, it was no big deal. I was like, I think it's a big deal. Um, and I was just really upset at learning my grandfather had been in the Klan and, and, and troubled by it. Like it, it agitated me in this really profound way because I'd been doing this work. And, um, and so I sat with that for a while, 18 months or so. And then as I finished that dissertation and turned it into a book, I just thought I can't let my his last name be my last name anymore. Can't have that be on my book. And I decided to change my name and I had never liked my first name, which also stood for white Lily. Uh, my name is Suzanne. And that's the root of that name means white Lily, which was the, like the symbol of white Southern womanhood. And I was like, I'm just changing my whole name. So I changed my name uh, to Jesse Daniels after uh, a woman named Jesse Daniel Ames, who was, uh, from Texas, as I was, and she started something called the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching. So she was one of the few white women during the period of lynching who kind of stood up and said, not my name, and she organized other white women around that idea. And so I changed my name um, in honor of her. And when I sent some writing of mine to my father and told him about my name change, I thought he was going to be proud of me or at least want to have a discussion with me about it. Instead, he had me locked in a psych ward for 72 hours. That was his response. So I've been causing a scene for some time now. Oh, good Lord. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. So this is going to be... Uh, so the first question I have for you, I just wrote it down, is... And this is just, you know, just speculation, hypothesis. I mean, um, you know, uh, hypothetical. Do you mm -hmm. think you would have had the same response to finding that book had you not been doing the research you were doing? I, I don't. I mean, I think that the research I've been doing, you know, and, and lots of other, you know, not just my dissertation research, but I had been working for this professor named Joe Fagan and part, and I was a research assistant for him. And part of my research for him was 
um, transcribing these interviews of middle-class black Americans talking about their experiences with discrimination. And they were like, it's like almost 300 of those interviews. And my job was to type every word of what was said in those, in those in-depth interviews. And that experience of typing those interviews really changed me. I think I had begun graduate school in my mid twenties as kind of a, you know, center left liberal. I had moved from the ardent, you know, segregationist politics of my parents to sort of center left, you know, like most, you know, white people in my milieu and, uh, and listening to those, those recordings, listening to those interviews, like transform me. I was a different person on the other side of those. So, um, so both the experience of doing the research, I mean, my earlier research on lynching, I began to see white women as like the defense of white women, the protection of white women as, as really integral to that whole reign of terror of lynching. And I, I had already begun to feel complicit in that, you know, like implicated in that, um, like, oh, I'm a white woman and that's me that they're talking about and I don't want any part of it. How do I get away from it? Um, and then hearing those interviews of people talking about not, you know, historical racism and discrimination, but like daily in my contemporary current world happening on an ongoing basis. I was just like, uh, I was, I was wrecked by that in a, in a really good way. You know, it really disturbed me and I wanted, um, I had already, was already looking for ways to like disrupt that system. Were you already identifying as queer at the time? Also a process. (laughs) I also came out in graduate school. Um, I, um, yeah, I had been married twice to men and kept um, sort of surrounding myself with strong women that I was attracted to. And I, I finally sort of started taking my own inventory pretty seriously. I was like, there's a pattern here <laughs> to really reckon with this. But, you know, in my own defense, it was Texas. <laughs> and it was before <laughs> the internet. And, you know, yes, it exactly. was a different time. So it was a little bit yeah. harder to figure out. But yeah, finally, by about the time I was 28, I um, left the second husband and fell in love with a woman and moved in with her and yeah, I've been identifying as queer since then. Right. And so I ask because there's so many, um, once you realize or go down the rabbit hole of um, identifying, like identifying oppression in, in, in one mm-hmm. area, you yeah. start seeing these connections in other areas. Exactly. And that's why I tell, and, and then you really start seeing the system. And this is why white people get so freaking, it's like, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not talking about you as an individual. This, these are freaking (laughs) systems, but you know what? And so I don't, and the reason I don't talk about you as an individual, two things. One is their system and dealing with you on an individual level has no impact on the system. Also, you've never asked me what kind of black I am. So I'm not going to ask you what kind of white you are. All white for me. So we're going to, we're going to make that an equal level playing field. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, just one thing, if I could, just on the systems thinking and sort of how being queer changed things for me, like there's this, you know, when I began to think about like white women who had resisted um, white supremacy, I mean, there, there was a, pa- there was another pattern that I started to notice, which is that a lot of these women were queer or, or, you know, lesbian, but closeted. So like one of the people who was really influential to me was um, Lillian Smith, who wrote a book called Killers of the Dream. And she was a a white woman who was writing about um, really the connection between love and racism and how, you know, she had been taught both love by her by her father, but also this this horrible racism. And and she also identified as queer, um, you know, or lesbian in the uh, language of the day. And and then on through, you know, there were other women like Minnie Bruce Pratt and Mab Segrist. And, you know, it was just like a pattern. And and part of what I began to realize was it, w- it wasn't only about, about seeing um, systems connected, but I really began to believe it was about standing outside the white nuclear family, right? If you're not going to be married to a white man and reproduce white children, it gives you, you know, what Patricia mm-hmm. Hill Collins calls a different angle of vision, right? It gives you like a different perspective mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. on what the system of 
you know, because your end goal is different. You don't have, you don't, you're not striving for that end goal. So you start, you look around and see what you want to strive for. And it becomes this other thing and you start seeing, Oh, I I definitely understand that. Cause I'd never had like the biological clock ticking thing. I was like, "Eh, no. Um, And so it's like, "Eh." and so I, there have been times that I was like, well, do I, and I'm like, nah, every time I, every time I circled that, I was like, "Eh, no, Um, kind of thing. Um, I'm, I'm happy you brought, so Okay, there are two things that I want to talk about. Um, I'm happy you brought up how you saw so many lesbian and queer women in this uh, space, which um, um, because it it speaks to why for I say tech is a microcosm of the macrocosm. I've never been around so many queer non-binary. And anybody on the LGBTQA plus mm-hmm. spectrum at all in my life, you get exposed um, people on with neurodiversities, people of all different people with um, invisible disabilities. Um, you you see so much of that in tech, and when when you were talking, it just kind of popped in my head that it. Ma- it makes sense that tech is where all these hard conversations are happening right now <laughs> because mm-hmm. there are so many individuals who are coming f- outstanding outside of that white family, nuclear family who are yeah. saying, I matter. I, um, my, I need to be safe and I'm demanding that thing. Um, and you just yeah. that, that's what just clicked for me. And I, and I tell people this, they're like, why are you so optimistic? I was like, because tech has to get this right. We're causing too much harm. If nothing else for a risk management issue, mm-hmm. we have to get this right. And when other industries right. see that we're, we are moving this, they're going to have to shift. We're going to shift them as we've been shifting mm-hmm. them with all these dumbass products we keep creating. <laughs> Um, I like that. But yeah. And so the other thing I wanted to talk about, so you can talk about that more if you want. But one thing I want to talk about, I'm so happy you brought this up, is the protection of white women. Oh, to have a white woman to talk about oh, this. Because yes, this is when I, before we got on the show, everyone, we were talking about the, because so today is the, uh, what is today's date? Um, 21st of October, I believe. Yes, October 21st. And on October 20th, yesterday, um, Amy Knight did what Amy Knight often does is go on Twitter as a um, white passing woman and talk about how great her experience is in tech. And she doesn't understand why people are angry and we need to soften our tone and all these other things. So that started. And then by, (laughs) by, no, she actually did that. I, I was late to it. I take it back. She started that on the on the, t- on the 19th, which was Saturday. I picked it up on Sunday. And by the time I came back from a wedding Sunday night, this guy named John Susmiz, Sunsmiz, but his handle is simple old programmer without an E on programmer. Just really, he, his whole first Twitter was um, about how these um, men in tech, why wouldn't you come to protect Amy's reputation? And da, 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 da. I'm like, and he went in, he called black women idiots, told people to shut up, <gasps> um, um, attacked trans women. Oh, he just went in. And wow. he has, his initial tweet was to you weak, pathetic men who are not saying something while Amy Knight is being torn apart by. Um, um, social justice warriors they're they're coming for you next stand up now or hear your silence when it's your turn he has 47,000 followers wow and he went in and people were like oh he's just no he is doing what white supremacy told him to do is protect the white woman Yep, and yep. he is acting out of that. And, 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 and he was, he finally admitted, cause I was kept telling people he's stopped trying to, he's, this is not an individual you need to be teaching cause he's not here to learn. He did it on mm-hmm. purpose. And this is the whole, this is the whole thing. So Amy, this is like the second or third time she's done this. She'll make a statement. She gets pushed back and then she deletes the original message. Oh, yeah. And so exactly. And so people are left without context but you know, black women, we document everything. So we've already <laughs> taken screenshots. Yeah. And then she comes back all uh, um, being apologetic. 
Um, and people are like, so she does another, totally another thread that does not connect to this thing and says, oh, I made a mistake. I've been thinking about my actions. So it's out of, totally out of the blue. Ugh. And then when, when individuals come back and say, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Then you get people like John who don't understand the con, don't know what's going on, uh-huh. who come to her defense. And she uses and weaponizes it. And now she's off Twitter again. And she'll be back. And this people are like, oh, I was like, nothing is going to change. When these two individuals come back on Twitter, everybody's going to, because it didn't, didn't impact you, many of you directly, mm-hmm. you have short memories, you're going to forget about it. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to be, you know, giving them the benefit of the doubt again, because, oh my God, they may have learned something. And you're just yeah. giving them an opportunity to harm again, because this is not her first time doing this. Wow. Now I missed all that. I'm going to have to go back, see what I can find out about her. Oh, I don't know and her. so. So please, as a white woman, tell me, because, okay, so I said white passing, because I know in one, one tweet that she deleted, because, uh, <clears throat> you know, like I said, to me, it's all whiteness. Uh-huh. I don't ask what you are. If you're white passing, you fit in that too. Right. That, right. that includes Jews. That includes um, anybody. Right. Who, if you, because you're, you're so close to privilege, I mean, white privilege, mm-hmm. you, you benefit from it. Right. So right. that's where I, because I'm not going to spend, you're not going to argue with me. I'm not, right, you're gonna, right. not going to wear me down with uh, what I am. So one tweet she put out, and she, the last time she did that, she immediately deleted was uh, when I said uh, whiteness. She was like, um, she was, um, said something about her being um, uh, a native, and she deleted it. <laughs> exactly. And so I always preface this with white passing. And also, it's not an attack on her because this is what, you know, she wants. Everybody's going to think we're bullies. It's not an attack on her. This is a system that allows her, whatever she is, to benefit from, um, from whiteness. Because I'm also Cherokee, but unlike Elizabeth Warren, <laughs> I didn't get any benefits from it. Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot to say there. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm actually working on a book right now that I'm calling, uh, it may, the title may change, but right now I'm calling it From Barbecue Beckys to Pink Pussy Hats, <laughs> calling in white, white women and white feminists. Because we white women have got some work to do. Everyone in the hashtag called the scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, Tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, intention without strategy is chaos. Three, lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtag causeascene.com. Because we white women have got some work to do. Oh my God. I have been talking about why white feminism, why feminism does not work for me. And I created a, and I'm, uh, yeah, I apologize, but I wanted to make sure I say this because I, um, I knew feminism didn't work for me because I was saying it's actually white feminism because what it requires is for people who aren't white. It, it requires the women in the room to align on one issue, which is gender, which means it ignores my race, which is my exactly. biggest Exactly. Um, to many people, my the biggest threat. Yeah. But yeah. I had a, a an awakening that took me out for a few days, literally, because what it what I really realized is I don't even fit in the gender part because white white supremacy t- teaches whiteness that I'm an animal. I'm not their equal. So even there's nothing in feminism that respects me as a human being, let alone mm-hmm. as a black woman. Oh my God, that just, that knocked me out for a few days. I was like hurt. (laughs) Yeah. I've been talking about what I call gender only feminism. And that's what a lot of people call white feminism. It's really destructive, you know, for, for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned there, but, but one of the things I mentioned, um, so I did a book in 2009 called cyber racism and, and for much of that book, I, I, uh, as a follow-up to my first book where I went to Southern Poverty Law Center and looked at these white supremacists periodicals that were printed. Um, and then for cyber racism, that first book's called White Lies. The second one, Cyber Racism, came out in 2009. And I followed up those, the white supremacists who'd been in print and wanted to see if they'd made the transition to the popular internet, you know, and some of them had, some of them hadn't. Um, but one of the things I noticed in that transition early on was that at places like Stormfront, where I spent a lot of time 
at the at the time it was the largest white supremacist portal online. And and what I noticed is that instead of these male only um, newsletters that I have been tracking in print, now when they were at storefront, <laughs> it like opened up to women. And so one of the places I spent some time was at um, uh, an online forum at Stormfront called Ladies Only Forum, and the language there at the Ladies Only Forum on Stormfront was was shockingly similar to uh, National Organization for Women mm-hmm. rhetoric, you know, like standard white feminist rhetoric, you know. And so, so part of the point that I made in that in that book was that you know this kind of gender only feminism that's just about um, how do we become equal with white men it maps completely perfectly on top of white supremacy. Like there's no, there's no distinction there, you know? But you yeah. just said ex- totally explains where TERFs come from. Yeah, say more. Um, the, the, uh, and I get, I'm gonna, um, cause I don't want to mess it up cause I know TERF stands for tr- uh, trans exclusionary radical, radical feminism. Yes, yes. Yes. And so when you're talking about gender only, when they don't, when they ascribe that trans individuals cannot be women based on uh-huh. genitalia, um, uh-huh. or either post up, um, pre, um, pre or post operate, that is the same uh-huh. kind of, and when you watch them talk online or whatever, it's that same yeah. kind of, that's that same languaging. Yeah. I mean, I think part of what's going on with the TERFs, if I understand, and I could have this all wrong, but I, what I understand is going on with the TERFs is a kind of biological essentialism, you know, that there's like this kind of biological essence to being a woman and that, and that you can't change it no matter what. And, you know, and trans people are like, like the living evidence that that's wrong, you know? So it's like, yes, I, I kind of don't understand why, why TERFs, you know, like what, what they have invested in that, but well, one of the things is it's a, it's it, the, the, there's this, but okay, so that's the academic. But what I see happening online is, oh, so you don't have a problem with going to the bathroom with somebody who's transgender? No, um, why uh, why should I have a? So they break it down into though as if they're again these animals. These they're less oh, than. Right. Yeah. 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 Yes. So that that's sense. that same languaging. So that's why I I, I have really affin, uh, affinity for the trans uh-huh. movement because they're considered subhuman as as our black women. Got you. Got you. I totally agree. And so that's that languaging. That's what I. That's the stuff I see when you. And it just hit me when you said that. I was like, that's the same language. Yeah, so uh, white women, and my understanding is that though there's a kind of um, so white women, we have been you know placed through through colonialism, through white settler colonialism in the U.S. We've been placed at the center of the culture and of all kinds of cultural products uh, projects like Manifest Destiny and that sort of thing. You know, sort of conquering the whole the whole um, you know. Um, land and removing people and genocide and all that, a lot of that was done in defense of or protection of white women. And and that is just kind of a, I mean, I'm not breaking any news here, right? I mean, that's like sort of obvious if you look at any of the historical data. Um, but, but white women who are, and, and especially white women who identify as feminists without a kind of critical race lens, um, are reluctant to see the way that white women have been implicated in all of this um, settler colonialism, right? So, so there's a kind of blindness that sets in for white women um, that I'm trying to, to use your language, trying to cause a scene about that there needs to be um, there needs to be more uh, attention paid to the way that white women have uh, placed ourselves at the center of. Uh, all sorts of cultural products, and I, I would say, in, in at the center of lots of technology. And I'll just bring this back to Barbecue Becky's, right? So, when I posted something on Twitter about maybe calling this book, you know, Barbecue Becky's, having it in the title, I got all kinds of pushback from white liberal folks, not just white feminists, but but including white feminists, and they were really upset about that language, saying that they thought it was inaccurate it what didn't really describe anything real and that it was offensive to white women. And I was like, listen, there's something about this title, this frame, this meme, Barbecue Becky, that is a pushback against this whole culture of white women 
being at the center and our protection being about the um, the center of, of our culture. And and the very fact that Barbecue Becky is calling 911 is about the most white woman move ever, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> 911 was a was originated after the murder of Kitty Genovese. And I don't know if you're familiar with that case, but this no. is 19, I want to say 64. <laughs> yeah, 1964, Kitty Genovese was a was actually a, a lesbian, uh, but closeted because, you know, early 60s. She was working in uh, at a bar in Queens, uh, got off late, um, and then started going back to her apartment in Queens, and she was attacked. She happened to be attacked by a black man. And the reporting at the time, she was she was raped and then killed. And the reporting at the time was that there were uh, in the range of 30 to 50 people who heard her cries for help and didn't call. And it, it spawned this whole area. Yes, because they all thought somebody else was going to call. Is that the same right. story? It started this whole, yeah, this whole area of research called bystander research, sort of why, does pe- why do people call or not call for help, da, da, da. Anyway. But the other thing that happened as a result of that was that that well-meaning people thought that what needed to happen was a new technology that made it easier to summon the police. And in a, in a 2015 documentary about Kitty Genovese's murder, they said that the 911 system developed as a result of that and said it, and they called it in the documentary, they called it one of the best things to come out of her murder. And so in a way, this murder of a white woman by a black man was the impetus for the whole 911 system. Like that system Mm -hmm. was designed to protect white women, to make it easier for other people to call and protect white women. So when Jennifer Schulte, who's the barbecue Becky of the meme, calls 911 at Lake Merritt in Oakland, California, on her black neighbors, she's actually deploying a technology that's been designed mm-hmm. for her protection explicitly or implicitly. I am so happy. This is why I say history matters. We have to know the origins of things. And this is why people piss me off when they delete tweets because you lose context. Um, And um, this is also why I say white women literally breed white supremacy. Right. don't like it, but I don't care because it's literally... And and it's this thing of... This is why every black woman and and every professional... experience has had a white um has had some kind of exchange um with a white woman they get in their feelings they start crying and no matter what the black woman says um could be accurate could be right could uh, probably is the victim of this as soon as white women start crying Everybody, all the attention goes to her. And then the black woman is the, now the, the aggressor and the wh- white woman, I don't care what mm-hmm. she's said or mm-hmm. done, is the victim. And you see it time and time again, these videos where mm-hmm. they, um, now I don't understand you white people because at this point you should know as soon as a camera <laughs> comes out, you need to shut your damn mouth because um, it's not going to end yeah, well for you. you. Think. But what happened exactly? And so what happens is they're they're going. They're oh, you know, like full on showing their racist design upbringing, and then the the apology is this crying, this oh, I I was drunk, I was off my meds, all of this thing, and 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 I shouldn't lose. I'm losing my job. Okay, and don't the, the, whiteness is never is not used to consequences to this behavior. This is a shock for many of them. So I'm that's uh, this is why I'm 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 gonna say the title is so abrasive for white women because it speaks is in their face. It speaks to all those times, especially the, the those great liberals and, and progressives who are in the way and causing harm. Um, all those times, if they really looked back honestly at the things that they've done in their experience, they've caused harm through weeping. They've caused harm through, oh, my feelings are hurt. They've caused mm-hmm. harm through, I don't feel safe. Or, like someone came, uh, actually wrote me an email and wanted to ask me a question because when she came up to me at an event, she felt, she, uh, felt, that, I, she felt that I was aggressive. I didn't even speak mm-hmm. to her. I don't even know who, is 
Yeah. This is what, um, there's a writer named Robin DeAngelo called White Fragility, yes. right? Be- this notion mm-hmm. that, that white people are so fragile that they can sort of break at any any affront at all. But it's not just the, the that, it's, it's that white people put feelings equal on equal level and it's often higher than actual harm. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. That is the thing that is killing us. That is the thing that's keeping us from getting yeah. raises and promotions at the job because your feelings get hurt and you want to go to HR and say right. that Kim was angry with you or she did this or she was intimidating. All these all these words, and it goes back to me not being fully human. I'm, an right. ape. I'm some kind of animal. Right. Right. That you need yeah. to fear. I haven't done anything like some wild beast. In the, in the, but the the idea that I have the potential to do it is enough for you to get um, um, sympathy and I be vilified. Exactly. And there's a whole system in place to reinforce that. Right. It's not just it's not just individual mm-hmm. white women. It's and that's why I don't talk about the individual. Exactly. It's not about the individuals. Right. It is about whiteness as a construct. So tell me. So when you saw that. The, the people had because I want to talk the the book I do have is cyber racism. So how let's talk about how how you saw how you okay so th- okay oh this is good. So when you wrote this book, white people were like oh we're in post racial yeah. you know we're done. Now we're in 2019. I know you're not still writing this book, but have you seen what have you seen since that book and where we are today? Well, goodness, yeah, there's a lot to say about that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, when I wrote that, in two, when that came out in 2009, people were like, you know, I mean, they were politely receptive, sort of like that I had done this study of this weird um, corner of the internet that, you know, often gets called the dark corner of the internet, which I really hate that phrase. But, um, you know, they would say, well, that's nice. But don't see really how it's relevant because, as you mentioned, where, you know, Obama had just been elected for the first time and, um, you know, people were still optimistic about the democratizing um, possibility of the Internet and it was all going to be great. And, and, you know, so there were Nazis online. You know, that's the, the price you pay for freedom of speech. That was really kind of the, the take on it. Um, fast forward to 2016 and that election and 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 kind of the prominence of white supremacists in the lead up to that election, uh, white supremacists online in the lead up to that election, and then Charlottesville, right, the following year. And and people began to take white supremacy a lot more seriously. I mean, you know, part of what I've seen happen is a a kind of a rush into the space. So now there are all sorts of people who are who are experts in white supremacy mm-hmm. and yeah. oh my and God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. very new to the game, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so... Mm-hmm. And, and causing harm left and right. Well, yeah. I mean, part of what's happening both among journalists and among researchers, and this is not, you know, this is not everybody, but but you see a trend where people are, are like surprised, you know, like, oh my God, there are Nazis online. And it's like, well, yeah, I've been saying. Um, and so it, it puts me in a weird place, you know, because I mean, some people are, are like recognize the work and they're like, oh, right, you got this early on. And then other people are like, who are you? You know? And, and it's, mm-hmm, a, mm-hmm. it's just a weird place to be to kind of have to assert myself, you know, in the field when it's like it, my prominence is not the issue. Like the, like the, the harm to people is the issue. And I need you all to pay mm-hmm. attention to what's been going on and that this is, you know, got a much longer tail on it. It's got a much longer trajectory on mm-hmm. it. So the, so the concern that I see really is people who come in, who are sort of new to thinking about white supremacy and new to thinking about white supremacy online and want to make it, entirely a new thing like this just happened starting in 2016 and it's like you you mm-hmm. really misunderstand the roots of this if mm. you begin at 2016 like this has got a much longer mm-hmm. trajectory and there are things that are happening that are different and that are new but mm-hmm. you can't understand what's new and different if you don't understand what came before it I'm now ready to articulate and to publicly share my need to shift from causing the scene. 
Apparently this work, this push for equity, for minimizing harm, and for prioritizing the most vulnerable is collectively viewed by many as noise, bullying, troublemaking, as contrarian for controversy's sake, rather than what it is, a necessary evolution for the overall health and well-being of those who work for us, partner with us, buy from us, invest in us, and society as a whole. My focus from this day forward is to forge a path to welcoming and psychological safety in systems, institutions, and policies at scale because I will no longer put new wine into old wineskins. My team and I will be spending the next few months making the necessary changes to ensure that my new commitment to doing the proactive work of leading a movement framed by the guiding principles and seen through an anti-racist lens strategically happens with a relaunch on Juneteenth. To be kept informed of our progress, please follow me on Twitter at K-I-M-C-R-A-Y-T-O-N-1, Kim Creighton 1, and on our new Kim Creighton's Community Cafe Discord server. When I started Hashtag Cause a Scene in 2019, it was out of my frustration that no one was listening. Now that you're listening, it's time to get to work. Thank you for the years of support, and I'll meet you on the other side. Have a wonderful day. what's new and different if you don't understand what came before it. And that's, again, why history is so important. And this is why I say white supremacy is the parasite that's now eaten on its host. Because yeah. until, until 2016, many white people, this was not of interest to you at all because it did not impact correctly. Um, yeah. So I say all the time, I'm happy that we have the president we have because he blatantly put it in your face what this country has always well, right, been. right. I mean, he really challenges people, yeah. And you can't gaslight black people anymore when we're, when we're like, why are you being so sensitive? We dealt with race. No, we didn't. No, uh It's just been under the, like you said, you saw it in 2000, um, 2008. It was going on before then. You just was able to, you, know, you just saw people who, who, were, who were bold enough to document and discuss it publicly kind of thing. It, it's, it, it's just, it's like white supremacy. It's like anti-racism. All of these are the new trendy. It's like it's it's a new um, this new trendy thing. And I I listen to people who were draw. And this is an issue I have with uh, Robin DiAngelo's book. It doesn't go far. It, it's mm-hmm, a great mm-hmm. kindergarten yeah. book, but so many people use that as the de facto. Um, right. uh, expert opinion. Yeah. She's a white person. She does not have expert. She does not is not have expertise as a lived experience as a person of color in this country. So no, this is a great book for you to learn some language and to learn how to manage your feelings. But that's just kindergarten work. The stuff I'm doing is at college level. I ain't got time to be dealing with babies. Yeah. So yes, read that book, but right. know that that is just the beginning. And they want to use that as mm-hmm. the okay. I, I'm good. I I know what this is now. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it's the same thing with the, I mean, my understanding of what's going on, I'm actually working on a study of this right now, is my understanding of what's going on in the tech world, like at the companies around, um, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion training is all around implicit bias. Now, that's that's some fabulous research that's going on in um, implicit bias. Jennifer uh, Everhart has a new book out about it. Um, it but but that's not enough. And, and there's, <laughs> exactly. and there's research. And they want to check, they, they do it and check that box. Yeah, exactly. And there's research that shows that, that actually can, can backfire. Like, like if you do implicit bias training with people, there are some people who come out of that going, well, there's nothing I can do because it's, you know, baked in. So I just, I'm hardwired to be this kind of biased. And so that's, I can't do anything about it. And what's interesting mm-hmm. is we have been to it. I, I have been saying I don't need research to tell right. you that. That's what I could tell you. I agree with points of the Google manifesto guy and the Microsoft people. And with that, uh, that crap that Starbucks do, does do not. Why are you forcing people into implicit bias training? So you're making the assumption that again, whiteness is always given yeah. the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. You're making the assumption if they got more information, they would change. They have exactly the information they want. And so what you end up doing is weaponizing this and harming the people who are most vulnerable. Forget the people, white people who feel that they don't, 
they can't do anything because it's baked in. You're actively putting black and brown people in spaces to have conversations about their lived experience that people are going to say, well, prove that. Well, I don't experience that. What's that? So you're actively harming people while you're doing this training. Right. Yeah, that's why I've been advocating um, in the last uh, year. Well, it's actually in the conclusion of of cyber racism book, but but in the last year, I've really been pushing this idea of racial literacy. That that mm-hmm. what people, especially people working in tech, need to do um, is to educate themselves. It has, it has three components. One is educate yourself cognitively, like learn the history, like learn you know, learn about Tulsa, learn about Black Wall Street and why that doesn't exist anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. And then uh, the emotional part of it, learn how to handle racially stressful uh, situations like, you know, what you were saying about the kindergarten level of white fragility, like Mm -hmm. manage your emotions. Um, And then third, there's commitment to action. There has to be commitment to action, either either at the grassroots from people working in these companies, you know, like the tech won't build it folks, or from uh, from leadership, you know, we and you know we've seen there's a it's rare to find that in leadership, but it but it can it can happen. Um, so I think that I mean from my perspective, racial literacy is like a it's like a harm reduction approach to uh, racial microaggressions in tech. Uh, there's just a lot of way that that we here in the dominant culture are doing harm to the people that we work with through racial microaggressions at work, and there's no. And there's no um, solution on offer for that. And I think that racial literacy is is one step forward in that. And like I said, it's it's harm reduction. You know, it's not it's not dismantling racial capitalism, but it, it is a way that we can do less harm in the meantime. So it's so funny because um, uh, prioritizing the most vulnerable is is one of the hashtag cause of scenes um, guiding principle, and it's about. We'll all cause harm. We want to minimize harm. That's what we you want to do as much as you can to minimize harm. Um, one of the things that you said that I no longer agree with, and 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 I have the perspective I, um, as part of on Sundays I do how to be an anti racist podcast. And we're reading um, mm-hmm. um, Abram Kendi's book, and yeah. I we I'm no longer I'm I'm taking his language. I'm no longer calling them microaggressions. There, this is abuse. Um, yeah, we, yeah. We language it as abuse. People, it's this more shocking term than micro because these aren't micro to the people who are who are being afflicted yeah. with these on a daily basis. Yeah, um, yeah Actual abuses that over time are psychologically, physically detrimental to our lives, personal and professional lives. And so, yeah, it's it's it, it's it. The, and and the thing that I um so when I was saying about the the Google Manifesto guy. It's like, dude, mm-hmm. I get your point. I wouldn't want to be there if I didn't want to be there either. That's not why you were fired. You were fired because you disrupted a billion-dollar damn company. With, uh, from, from, so you were a risk management issue. This had nothing to do with <laughs> this, this right. thing. You used um, um, Google's um, platform. If you would have put it on your own medium, they, you would have had a better case, probably, because that was mm-hmm. your own. But you used their own, their internal service. You disrupted their business. Their CEO had to come back from off vacation. Their newly hired DNI person had to uh, rev up. You caused you you caused that was money. So no, they had nothing. Mm-hmm. In, um, and I really, mm-hmm. I really, really, it's all about minimizing harm. And, and stop centering yourself. And I tell people, white people, I'm no longer responsible for your feelings. If you can't make yeah. this, I hear this all the time when somebody acts, just makes an ass out of themselves on Twitter and somebody comes to their rescue <laughs> and says, oh, but they're not, um, they have, you know, like p- people issues. Well, then let's, let's, let's talk about this. Then until you get therapy and deal with your people issues, you don't get to be around <laughs> humans. That's just how that works. Right. You don't right, get to right, continue right. to harm because you have a lack, because you have an issue. And I'm a certified special needs teacher. So I know if people always talk about people on the spectrum, please stop denigrating people on the spectrum. Don't do that. Yeah, really. don't, because um, from K through 12, which most at some point, most people are identified on the spectrum. Although there are a lot of people in tech who are getting identified on the spectrum as adults, which is really um, interesting for me, but um, most yeah. people, yeah, most people are identified in elementary school level, and they've had those years of working with a um, educational plan that helped them prepare for the outside world. So don't act like that that is a default or they get a pass because you are now villainizing a whole group of people who don't behave, who work really hard to manage their own um, their own idiosyncrasies wherever they are on the spectrum, and and so. 
and or they have social anxiety disorder, then you get you some pills, you go to therapy, whatever. <laughs> but what you do will not do until you manage that. Or if you cannot manage that, you don't speak at conferences. You don't have public things. You just deal with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've been allowed to just get away with that for so long. Yeah. I mean, the other the other issue that we should probably uh, just touch on is the the other point that, you know, um, Ibram uh, X. Kendi makes about um, the roots of, of all this. You know, it's not... Um, I mean, he says it's not—it's not hatred. It's not emotional. It's actually self-interest. And there was—and just t- just tying that directly yes. to tech, there was an interesting um, thread, and I can't remember who sent it, but I, I retweeted it recently. And they were talking about um, what's his name, Peter Thiel, um, and the whole uh, Palantir thing. And he was giving a speech, and basically he was saying. Um, don't let anybody tell you that what you need in these early tech startups is diversity. He said, diversity will slow you down. Ah, oh, yes, 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 yes. And what, and all you have at the beginning, the only advantage you have at the beginning is speed. speed. Yes. And you know, there's that, that old, um, aphorism from the tech world, uh, uh, move, fast, fast, and move fast and break, mm-hmm. break things. Mm-hmm. Right. And that moving fast, right. Is, is, um, is a, is a central ethos, right, in the tech yep. world. And it's interesting that to have it put out there that explicitly that moving fast really depends on homogeneity. It, it depends on a, a sameness of cultural assumptions and, and lived experience, right? So if you have a, a small group of white guys, you know, from the same upper middle class went to Stanford background, then sure, they can move, move fast and break things. You know, and as, and if you're willing to fit into that culture so that you too can move fast and break things, um, then that's how um, things get built in the tech world. And we really are, you know, we're um, destroying the, the earth. You know, we're destroying the earth. We're destroying democracy. We're destroying the problem. Uh, yeah. the, and so I don't even have a problem with moving fast and break things. Okay. As a business strategist, I have no problem with that. The problem is moving fast, breaking things, moving fast, breaking things, moving fast, breaking things, and never taking time to figure out what the hell you broke, why you broke it, um, how does it impact anybody, um, yeah. any of that, because that's what, the, what are you do? You're breaking stuff. What is the data telling you? What, what, because there's some experimentation in there. Um, and that's the part that they don't want to do. And that's the part that requires diversity of perspectives to look at that and say, okay, h- how do we break that? Oh, you thought we broke it that way. I see that we broke it this way. And that is where I say, I debunk all that bullshit that he's saying because he leaves out the part that says, because we collect all this data, what are we doing with it? And so that is the ethos of this community. And that's why we're where we are. And people are like, well, Facebook changed that. For, hell, they could change it all they want. It's already baked into the culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's about can can we what are we learning from the things we're doing? And this is where we don't we don't want to stop and think about because again, when we start reflecting, we rec- when we're talking about self-interest, the self-interest may may be, I mean, the, the thing is may self-interest part may be to not to do that because the answer is you are personally impacting negatively people's lives and you don't mm-hmm. want to deal with that. And we yeah. see that on Twitter. I, I mean, dude, if you can't get Nazis off, just say you can't get Nazis off. But stop playing with the like buttons and all that stuff because that's not the problem. <laughs> ah, so what would you like to say in your final moments? This has been a really good conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been great talking with you. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess my my parting shot would be just that white people need to need to do better. You know, <laughs> like we okay, say say what that is because when you say do, I want to, what's tangible that they can freaking do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the what I was saying about the racial literacy approach. I think one, it means educating yourself. There's a there's a cognitive element. I think there are so many. Um, ways that white people can educate themselves. Like if you want a reading list, find me. I can give you a reading list. There are, there are so many materials out there. There are documentaries. If reading's not your thing, there are documentaries you can watch. You know, there. I mean, there are just so many ways that white people can educate themselves. Find a podcast like this one. Educate yourself. Like so many ways, no matter what kind of learner you are, there are so many ways to educate yourself. That's the cognitive part. The second part is the emotional part. Like, get used to having difficult conversations and being uncomfortable. I mean, part of what is uncomfortable for white people is 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 this academic term. I am looking for a better way to say, but 
but the way we say it in academia is to de-center whiteness. And basically what that means is that your, your assumptions, your culture, your way of doing things is not the center of things. And that means you're, you know, thrown off a little bit and you have to figure out what other people think, what other people's experiences are, what, uh, when your way of doing things isn't the assumed um, default, then how do things look? How could things be differently? And that often takes with it, carries with it a kind of emotional weight that that is just slightly uncomfortable. It's not even real uncomfortable, you know? It's just a little bit uncomfortable. And and white people have to increase their capacity for just even a little bit of discomfort. And sometimes that means that you're going to mess things up because, you know, it's not your culture, your way of doing things that's uh, leading the way. And so you have to get used to being called out, you know, and and that may be uncomfortable. And you And we just need to you know, have a little bit more courage, a little bit more uh, strength of character um, to be able to deal with that and go, oh, I see, I messed up. Let me keep going <laughs> and, not, and not rain down terror on somebody's head because of that, you know? Mm-hmm. And then and then the third thing from my perspective is a, is a commitment to action that, that no matter what, we're going to make things um, more equal than they are, less unjust, that we're going to do less harm to other people, that we're going to take some actions and make things better um, than, than the way they are, the way they are now. Thank you so much. Cause you reminded me of um, that first one definitely reminds me, this is why I start every presentation I do with defining terms. I'm a, um, I'm an educator by, by, just birth and so it's like I, I if i have a talk we're going to start with defining terms so we all on the same page you don't have to agree with my definition but this is the definition we're using um so anything i refer to is that i create so much and and, and so many people create so much content out there there is no excuse exactly um, not to particularly tech space we use tech for every freaking thing um, to not get an education on these things. And before you open your mouth, I find I often it's, it's, it amazes me how often some I've retweeted. So people don't understand. I have a strategy in everything I do, because if not, as a black woman, it will tire me out. And, and it's not it's, I'm not trying to be a martyr for this crap. So um, I I've. I've, you know, done something, I've retweeted something, I responded, and they come in as if they know what's going on. And then you, you I engage them a little bit. And then you, it always, well, that's absolute. <laughs> Quite often, you, they will finally say, mm-hmm. oh, I apologize. I didn't know yeah. what was going on. Yeah. That exactly. right there is whiteness. You get to have an opinion about shit that you have no clue about. There's no way in hell right. a black woman right. could do that and get away with it. We have to come with all the research, all the data, everything. And then they just like, they just like rebuff it off. Like, oh, I just, oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. Or I didn't. Uh, what? Yeah. Do you realize how much harm you could have caused had I not been engaging you? Yeah. Because you didn't do the bare minimum? Yeah. That right there is is a huge woman right there. Before you engage, and this is for these new people who inclusion and diversity, all this stuff is a fad. Before you engage, do your work. Because activism, and I loved your last one, because activism has the word act in it. (laughs) Yeah, commitment to action. Absolutely. Commitment to do something. Thank you so much. This has been a breath of fresh air. My pleasure. Thank you so much for reaching out. It's been great talking with you. All right. And you have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hashtag Cause the Scene podcast. And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the Hashtag Cause the Scene movement. Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Cause the Scene community. Just visit the website at HashtagCauseTheScene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Cause the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day. <laughs>